with bureaus in London, New York, Jerusalem and Pongamomona. This is Shire Network News for the weekend in Tuesday, May 24, 2005. Welcome to the program. I'm your host, Tom Payne. Not my real name, of course. Shire Network News is the official podcast of the Anglospheric blog SilentRunning.tv and takes a look at the world through the eyes of blogs, that new form of citizen media that the New York Times keeps loudly insisting is of no consequence. All the blogs mentioned in this program will be hyperlinked on the associated post at SilentRunning.tv, so just go there and you'll be able to click on the links and visit them. Coming up a little later, the massacre in Uzbekistan. Jim Hoft, also known as Gateway Pundit, has been following events there closely, and he has a few things to say about the way the media keep using the phrase US ally when talking about that country's dictator, Islam Karimov. What frustrates me, though, as a conservative, is that the media is making people believe that this is one of the US's biggest allies, but uh, it's not Great Britain, it's not Australia. He may be a son of a bitch, but do we really want him as our son of a bitch? More on Uzbekistan later. Also, political blogging in the Shire. New Zealand pundits Craig Ranapia assesses New Zealand's significance on the world stage. No, we made the Hobbit movie. You know, we're terribly terribly important in the, um, in the scheme of things. 90% of the rest of the world doesn't know we exist, and 99% of the people who do think we're part of Australia. Craig Ranapia, a gay Maori conservative whose mere existence is sufficient to drive the Kiwi left into a frenzy of ambivalence. That's coming up at the end of the program. But first, blog news. Shire Network News would like to congratulate the editorial staff of Newsweek magazine for single-handedly keeping the right-leaning blogosphere in business this week. Newsweek was not content with sparking riots in the Muslim world by printing a story about U.S. personnel flushing a Quran down a toilet at Guantanamo Bay, the source of this story apparently being an imaginary talking hamster named Irving. No, later in the week it was revealed that they had earlier this year printed a quite gratuitously anti-American cover story and apparently attempted to hide it from the domestic audience in the U.S. by printing it in a Japanese edition. Kudos in this case goes to Gaijin Biker, who writes the blog Riding Sun, based in Japan, for spotting the cover and translating it for the rest of the world. This is an example of a very simple action by a blogger with a big impact. A blogger can see something in the morning, make it public at lunchtime, and by sunset, Fox News is all over it. The cover shows an American flag with its staff broken in a trash can and the headline, The Day America Died. Underneath it reads, With Bush remaining in office, the ideal of freedom is dashed to the ground. Nice. Coming as it did, hard on the heels of the fictional Quran flushing story, the Newsweek editorial board seems to be evenly split between those who advocate a policy of shitting and the strong go-blind lobby. The disconnect between the Western world's mainstream media and reality continued apace this week, with The Sun newspaper in Britain publishing photographs of the former Iraqi tyrant Saddam Hussein in his underpants. The rest of the media spazzed out completely to the bemusement of pretty much everyone else. Apparently, we're supposed to be terribly, terribly ashamed of ourselves for this horrible affront to the old mass-murdering dictator's dignity. The media are trying to run the old Abu Ghraib script again, but with rather less success this time. For one thing, the photo is at least a year old, and for another, Saddam looks pretty buff for a guy his age is in prison, and is also staring down the barrel of a death sentence. Mmm, death sentence for Saddam. Oh, I'm sorry. 
As for the volcanic rage of the hypersensitive Arab street, which the mainstream media fondly imagines will be triggered by this insult to Arab manhood and pride, we'll take a look at the photo on Tim Blair's site. There are some Arabs looking at Saddam and his smalls, and they all seem to think it's a huge joke. As Glenn Reynolds of Instapundit notes, the Arab street exploded all right in laughter. One of my favourite scholars is Fuad Ajami, and he visited the Middle East recently and came back declaring it is now bush country. In an article published at Opinion Journal, which is the website of the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, I hope I got that right, I wouldn't want to be accused of misrepresentation or anything. Anyway, uh, in Opinion Journal, Fuad Ajami insists that the Bush-inspired democratic revolutionary impulse in the region is genuine, and that Arabs are sitting up and paying close attention especially those who may find their regimes targeted for destruction. Not that I'm specifically mentioning baby Assad of Syria. Well, OK, I am specifically mentioning him, and that ridiculous moustache of his which makes him look like a junior member of the Dork Patrol. Fawad Ajami writes, The speed with which Syria quit Lebanon was astonishing, a race to the border to forestall an American strike that the regime could not discount. I met Syrians in the know who admitted that the fear of American power and the example of American forces flushing Saddam Hussein out of his spider hole now drives Syrian policy. They hang on George Bush's words in Damascus, I was told, the rulers wondering if Iraq was a crystal ball in which they could glimpse their future. A future in which I personally expect to be able to assess Bashar Assad's answer to the age-old question, boxes or briefs. For those of you who've just returned from a stint at a maximum security isolation chamber on the moon, or alternatively, a British Conservative Party conference, Ariana Huffington's new celebrity blog, The Huffington Post, is now up and running and keeping us abreast of such vital issues as Gwyneth Paltrow's opinions on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Apparently, drilling for oil could have a really bad effect on the caribou. Once you've put a massive drill bit rotating at high speed onto a caribou, it really tends to screw them up something shocking. The Huffington Post has been criticised as shallow, self-obsessed and overly focused on the opinions of celebrities with no particular knowledge of the subjects they write about. This criticism has come from bloggers, most of whom have no particular knowledge of the topics they write about either and are lucky to break 200 hits a day. Somehow this lack of readership confers integrity. The Huffington Post received, according to Kevin Aylward of Whizbang, an average of between 550,000 and 700,000 hits per day in its first week. Mind you, Kevin points out that in its second week, once the hype had died down a little, they only got an average of between quarter of a million and 400,000 hits a day. <laughs> Is that all? <laughs> On silent running, we get that sort of traffic. Well, if we keep going at our present rate with a howling tailwind and divine intervention, we could crack 400,000 hits sometime before the inevitable entropic heat death of the universe, let's put it that way. I wonder if we could persuade Ben Affleck to blog for us. Maybe a hard-hitting expose on how Hollywood is running out of Jennifer's for him to date. Essayist, patriot and two-fisted, red-blooded All-American Bill Whittle, voted by his classmates as most likely to need an editor and yet strangely least likely to actually use one, has written another census-shattering tome with an inspiring one-word title. This one is Sanctuary and deals with the perfidious nature of an enemy who deliberately hides behind civilians. The Israelis, of course, have had to deal with this kind of perversity for decades. There are those who might argue that at 14,524 words in a single post, coming in at just under 25 pages, 
This could be just a tad on the lengthy side, especially considering it's on a computer screen rather than dead trees, which in this case might be a more appropriate venue. Sanctuary joins similar essays by Mr Whittle, such as Power, Victory, Confidence and Empire. Sadly, the much-anticipated brevity remains on his to-do list. You're listening to Shire Network News, the official podcast of SilentRunning.tv, which takes blogs seriously. Someone has to. Uzbekistan. It's been in the news recently because the government of dictator Islam Karimov is facing some unrest, and he decided to deal with it in the time-honoured method of such rulers by having his troops open fire into an unarmed crowd of civilian protesters in Andijan on Friday the 13th. No death toll is available, no reliable one anyway, but the admittedly sketchy details reaching the outside world so far indicate that more people may have been killed there than at Tiananmen Square in 1989. The Uzbek strongman Islam Karimov claims the unrest is caused by Islamic fundamentalists, specifically an unlovely group called Hezbut Tahrir, who I have about as much time for as I do for Mr Karimov and his Stalinesque personality cult. The guy is so appalling that if he was told he needed to dissolve Parliament, he'd probably ask where he could lay his hands on several tanker loads of industrial-strength sulfuric acid. One of the best sources of information for those wanting to follow developments in Uzbekistan and Central Asia generally, and the troubling questions the whole thing raises about the role of US allies in the war on terror, has been Gateway Pundit, written by Jim Hoft, who's based in St. Louis, Missouri. I spoke to Jim by phone and asked him what got him interested in Central Asian politics. I followed the Kyrgyzstan revolution that occurred earlier this year, and it was fascinating to watch all that from my bedroom in St. Louis, Missouri, in the United States, and to to see that develop over there in Central Asia, in that remote, impoverished country. I, I followed that, and it was fascinating. It started out as a as a slow story, but quickly uh, things developed, and within a month, a month and a half, the uh, regime of Akayev fell, and the uh, protesters and the opposition took took over the country. And it was very exciting for me. I've been following that closely, some of these revolutions, oh, for the past six months, closely anyway. And uh, the first I had heard about it was Uzbekistan was earlier this spring. I knew that there were some things developing there. I knew that some arrests had been made. I knew that some protests had started. Actually, the the week before this last protest, this massacre, uh, the week before that, there were some other protesters who were at the U.S. Embassy grounds having a protest there for land rights, and the government came in and uh, stormed their little tent city that they had set up, and half of those people, and dispersed that crowd. So that was the week before this whole thing happened. So things were developing over there in Uzbekistan, and they have been for quite a while. Tell me about what you've been doing on your blog, Gateway Pundit, about this. You've been rounding up a lot of the news and having it all available basically in, in one site. I'll, I'll tell you, I, I woke up the morning of the 13th, and I like to do some blogging before I go to work. I like to see what's going on in the world. And I, I noticed right away that there was uh, some developments in, in Uzbekistan. The headlines, you know, saying that there was, a, there was some, some violence happening over there. So I, I wrote a post up. I, I had some pictures and, you know, got it out there before I went to work. Actually did a pretty quick job on a posting, but knowing that something was happening there, wasn't clear yet what was happening, but was excited about it, posted about it, and uh, went off to work. And then uh, as I followed some things during the day, I could tell that this was quite an event 
that was happening. wasn't quite sure still what it what had happened, but um, knew, knew that something major had gone down in Uzbekistan. Now you've been rounding up the news from Uzbekistan for a while now. What sort of a response have you had from the blogging world and, and, and from the mainstream media? Perhaps have you managed to make a difference or have an impact with what you've been doing about Uzbekistan? I've had some very positive response from some. Uh, people are interested in hearing this story. I've also had a few comments where uh, it's interesting in the culture that we have uh, how anything that goes wrong, they want to blame either the United States or the Bush administration. So I've had some of those comments also. Well, this gets down to the, the, the basis of the issue, doesn't it, which is that Uzbekistan and its leader, Islam Karimov, they're theoretically allies of the United States in the war on terror. There's a very important strategic U.S. base in Uzbekistan. But this regime is a bad regime. And this gets back to the old uh, adage, you know, he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. People are saying what's happening in Uzbekistan with a terribly repressive government and this massacre of unarmed protesters is a test of the Bush, of the Bush doctrine that if we're serious about introducing democracy, then how can we support someone like Islam Karimov? And he's done some shocking, horrible, right. terrible things. On the other hand, the opposition to him is a group called Hizbut Tahrir, which is a, a Muslim fundamentalist group. You're a conservative. You're supposed to be a cold-hearted, you know, rationalist or something. <laughs> I suppose that's the stereotype. What do you think about the actual issue? Well, you know, uh, the first thing I'd like to say is that I, I believe this was, uh, to some extent, blown out of proportion. I agree this is going to be a test for the Bush doctrine. You know, the, the Bush administration already, even on Sunday the 15th, had made a statement condemning the violence in Uzbekistan. Okay, so that was two days after the event happened and still not knowing exactly what did happen. So they made a stand right away. Condoleezza Rice, on her trip to Iraq, she was flying back through Ireland, made a stop there, and I believe made her speech there about Uzbekistan and not condoning the violence then. That was Monday night or Tuesday. So the Bush administration is, has made some comments. They're pressuring Kerry Mould administration to let outsiders in, to uh, do their own investigation. So they are doing some things. What frustrates me, though, as a conservative, is that the media is making people believe that this is one of the U.S.'s biggest allies. <laughs> and that, you know, certainly it's an important it's an important stop, uh, you know, Central Asia as far as, you know, getting supplies in and out of Afghanistan, out of, out of the region. But uh, it's not Great Britain. It's not Australia, <laughs> you know. So they are putting the pressure on, and, uh, you know, we're going to see what, what happens. I believe they're going to put more pressure on. This guy, um, Karimov, he's not just a warlord or a thug or a tyrant. I mean, he's, he's done some terrible things. Uh, the British am former ambassador there actually accused him of having some of his opponents boiled alive. Correct. You know, I, I've heard that story too, and certainly this is not a this is not a, a good man here. Um, and what uh, really is telling about his character is that after this this massacre, he uh, basically blamed it on Islamic fundamentalists, and also said that not one civilian was shot at. And uh, he may still be sticking to that story today, which is just uh, infuriating, I would think, to the people who live there if, if you lost a loved one in that massacre. So definitely not a good man. We're allied to a number of unsavory people. Pervez Musharraf in Pakistan springs to mind. What do we do in this part of the world if we're trying to fight a war? We're going to need allies, and no one there is a particularly shining light of liberal democracy. Exactly, and I think, you know, I've, I've read some some great comments. I'll follow Publius 
on this. That's a great blog as far as democracy. And uh, they were talking even today about, you know, we're not going to have these perfect countries to deal with. But, you know, we do the best we can. And we take what we can. And we push them to make the changes that are going to help the world, they are going to help us. But we can't wait till a country becomes the perfect democracy before we deal with them. That was Jim Hoft, better known as Gateway Pundit. His blog can be found at gatewaypundit.blogspot.com. You're listening to Shire Network News, the official podcast of silentrunning.tv. I'm Tom Payne. Now to New Zealand, where there's an election due later this year. The ruling Labour Party is still clinging to a lead in the polls, but the centre-right National Party is showing much more strength than it has previously, and anything could happen. New Zealand tends, on the whole, to play Canada to Australia's United States, with a variety of wacky political positions that keep it somewhat at odds with reality. Nuclear-powered or armed ships aren't permitted in New Zealand ports by law, and there's a Minister of Disarmament who sits in the Cabinet. I kid you not, you couldn't make this stuff up if you tried. Now, I'm actually from New Zealand, and I can tell you that the reason it's like this is because it's surrounded by a thousand-mile-wide moat in every direction, and at that distance, reality is merely an abstract concept. It really is the Shire to the rest of the planet's Middle Earth, and who knows the Shire better than Craig Ranapia, who writes for NZ Pundit. I asked him how he got into blogging in the first place. I've basically been blogging for about two years. Um, I started reading... Andrew Sullivan's work when he was um, editing the New Republic so of course I sort of went along to his blog, got interested in the whole phenomena and started um, a personal blog of my own called uh, High Windows which despite the, despite the name you know, wasn't full of tidbits about drugs but you see Gordon who um, runs NZ Pundit sort of came across it, thought we were um, a fairly good fit and he invited me to help pick up the slack at um, NZ Pundit Forum. So I've basically been doing that for about the last two years. What's the balance like between left and uh, right-wing uh, blogs in New Zealand? I, I think it was quite similar to the way blogging happened in the United States, to you know, use a bit of geek jargon. Um, the right tended to be um, early adapters, but the left have been picking up the pace recently, and probably the blogger with the highest profile in the mainstream media is Russell Brown, who runs publicaddress.net and runs his own blog, Hard News. We actually are having some success. It's actually keeping up the critique of our two state-owned media organisations, which is basically Television New Zealand and Radio New Zealand. These are two state-owned enterprises, and they have a a large effect. Are are blogs really trying to keep these two big media organisations honest, and are they meeting any success with that in New Zealand? I don't want to overstate the whole media bias argument, because I don't think it's a matter of... um, they sort of get together at a little cabal at a chi-chi restaurant to um, spread international socialism. I I think the main problem with basically the political staff of TVNZ and Radio New Zealand is they're basically white, middle-class, tertiary-educated people who are extremely sympathetic to the Labour Party. And I think like a lot of mainstream media journalists, they've got this vision of conservatives as being basically racist, 
homophobic religious lunatic. That doesn't exactly, for example, fit you, does it? Well, no. I'm an openly gay, Māori, cuddly, cuddly Catholic conservative. And I think that is where I've, I've found it quite interesting blogging because it's voices like mine that actually don't uh, get into the get into the mainstream media. I mean, you have these people who with the best will in the world and the very best of intentions actually think, well, if you're gay, you must be a left-winger. Or if you're Māori, you must be a left-winger. I mean, I think we, we just sort of slowly, being the alternative voice, just actually saying to the mainstream media, well, you actually haven't got the only perspective on the world that matters. In the New Zealand media, you get the impression that they honestly think that they do, and that voices like yours either aren't genuine or somehow don't deserve to be heard. Well, I mean, it's exactly now we have... Linda Clark, who's um, squealing away in the background as we speak. She runs her own show on uh, national radio. On national radio, yes. Uh, when she was actually challenged about the lack of conservative commentators, um, turned around and said, well, either they're, um, they're really boring or I can't think of any conservative who's worth calling. I mean, for example, her regular London correspondent is the editor of The Guardian Weekly. Well, you can talk to Patrick Enser just for the sake of argument. You couldn't get Boris Johnson to pick up the phone or a, or a Mark Stein or you know, someone from the Daily Telegraph. There are big countries like America and Australia who tend to take a certain view of, of world affairs, <laughs> but then there are these little ankle-biting countries like Canada and New Zealand that seem to go around trying to undercut what their big brother is, is trying to do. Why is that, do you suppose? No, we made the Hobbit movie. We, you know, we're terribly, terribly important in the, um, in the scheme of things. I, I think a, a little bit of it is a certain degree of um, insecurity about being the last bus stop before you hit Antarctica. It, it can be just a, a, a little unnerving for New Zealanders to realise that 90% of the rest of the world doesn't know we exist. And 99% of the people who do think we're part of Australia. Where do you think blogging is heading in New Zealand? I mean, there are quite a few new blogs that are just coming up. Uh, Sir Humphreys, for example, uh, <laughs> suddenly appeared, a very good blog. There are quite a few blogs out there. Are they going to have an impact, do you think? Like most areas of punditry, I'm sure anything I say is going to be you know, proved wrong tomorrow. Again, I think you have to separate out the Kiwi blogosphere into, I think, the people who sort of use this as, I mean, a front window for a mainstream media career. I mean, you have the Russell Browns and the dog-biting men folk on the left and David Farrer on the right. Now, I think they're always going to be around and they will continue to have an influence. And then you have the next tier of bloggers down who, you know, I call the hardcore, the hardcore partisans. Sir Humphreys that you cited is a very good example of that. I think the big, big challenge for that second tier of bloggers, and I'd count myself among them, is how you pitch yourself and style and content that you actually aren't preaching to the choir. What's been your favourite experience as a blogger? Is there any one post that you've done or been involved in that you're particularly proud of and think, yeah, that was, that was really good? My best moment was during the whole Doomgate affair, I did a bit of a rant about um, how disgracefully the um, Prime Minister had behaved. And it not only got quoted in the New Zealand Herald, where I was actually quite flattered to actually be called a controversialist 
blogger. Well, that's nice. Well, yeah, well, I suppose it's rather nice. It's much better than a drooling lunatic. But I also got quoted in a question in the House by um, Rodney Hyde, which um, sort of excited the um, response from the Prime Minister that um, I treat comments like that with the um, contempt they deserve. You must be very proud. Ah, yes, it was wonderful. It was the best ego boost I've sort of had in, had in weeks. I work on the theory that there are some people who's Content you wear as a badge of honour. That was Craig Runapia, who writes for NZ Pundit, which is available at www.nzpundit.com. And that's it for this second edition of Shire Network News, the official podcast of the Anglospheric blog SilentRunning.tv. I had been hoping to speak to a Canadian blogger this week about the political shenanigans in Ottawa, but uh, no one up north seems to be responding to their emails so far. I think the way the Liberals are clinging ever more desperately to power is actually an important issue. So if you're a Canadian blogger and can describe what's going on in a way comprehensible to foreigners, drop me a line at tom.payne at silentrunning.tv and we'll see if I can't make you famous. We hope to have the next edition of Shire Network News up by next weekend and after that, hopefully, it'll be out every week. Until then, may your God go with you.